All right, so um, I'm going to give a quick recap, but as I do, here's a few texts, maybe to put a thumb in. So obviously we're in Hebrews 7, we'll get over to Genesis 14, 17, following, and Psalm 110. These will be the three places where we spend the most time today. So Hebrews 7, Genesis 14, and Psalm 110. So, quick recap, uh, because this is, after all, one, it's like something like a long sermon. Um, so, it starts out in chapter 1, where we get this uh, vision, or this description of Jesus in uh, God-like terms. So, He is creator, sustainer, uh, image of the glory of God. He's superior to angels, so we're seeing Him as superior to those who uh, tradition suggests mediated the law. So, He's superior to law and In another sense, he's superior in that they are like little s, sons of God, and he is like a capital S, son of God. And then we get this first quote um, about from Psalm 110, actually in chapter 1. Psalm 110 pops up throughout, so we should uh, be somewhat familiar with it, and I'll read it again today. And then we see that Jesus, this is still in chapter 1, is exalted uh, as he becomes lower, and he goes back to this exalted status through a path of faithfulness, obedience, and sacrificial love. And in so doing, becomes our pioneer. Chapter 2, he is depicted as the truly human one. So once again, uh, the Hebrew author turns to the Psalms, and he says, you know that psalm about uh, the sons of men being a little lower than the angels? Well, let me tell you about a capital S, son of man. He is fully human. He is what humans are meant to look like. Uh, He shows us how to live. He is our pioneer. And as he becomes fully human, so chapter 1, fully God. Chapter 2, as he becomes fully human, uh, he uh, enables us to be freed from sin and death. By becoming flesh, he restores our flesh. And then he becomes, which is getting us maybe ready for chapter 7 soon, the merciful and faithful high priest. He has experienced temptation as we experience it, uh, and so he can empathize with us. In chapter 3, Jesus is seen as superior to Moses. As Moses was like a servant in the house of God, Jesus is like a son in the house of God. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus isn't only superior as a son to the servant, but if we're talking about the house of God, he's also the builder. Uh, He is that much better. Is Moses good? Absolutely. This isn't a downgrading of Moses. This is just how much more uh, exalted and superior Jesus is. And as the author looks at Moses and the house of God then Israel, and sees the parallel between Jesus and the house of God, the church, he says, let's learn from Israel. And what Israel did, particularly that first group, despite what they had experienced from God, they still were unable to enter the promised land because they weren't faithful, because of their disobedience. Not just a one-time thing, but this pattern. And so he says, be careful, lest that's true of you. Because just as they didn't enter rest, which was the promised land, so it's possible that through faithlessness and disobedience, we may not enter the Sabbath rest, which is like the promised land of heaven, of intimacy uh, with God. So as he reminds us of the conditional nature of the covenant, points forward to this greater promised land, uh, one of the ways we avoid the callousness of sin is that passage we might know where he talks about the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword uh, that can uh, cut through soul and spirit. And what seems to be him getting at here is If we don't want to grow callous in sin, we lay ourselves bare before the Word of God and allow the surgeon 
to do his work through it. It might be painful, it might be tough, but we do have, as it continues, a faithful and good, trustworthy surgeon. This high priest is sinless, he's empathetic, and he allows us to draw near to God. And this moves into chapter 5 with Jesus as the superior high priest. Like Aaron, he is chosen by God. We get another reference to Psalm 110. Uh, And his prayers as high priest are heard, not because of his um, um, birth uh, order or his pedigree, but because of his devotion. And, surprising statement here, he learns obedience through suffering. Our pioneer, our high priest, the truly human one, shows us the path to the promised land, and it's sometimes a difficult path, but it's the path of obedience And so he calls us to press beyond the basics to maturity. And this is bringing us into the chapter right before where we're going today. And as he says to press beyond the basics, I think N.T. Wright has a great um, analogy here. It's like um, he calls them to think about it like we think about the alphabet. You don't move beyond the alphabet in the sense that you just leave it behind you. You master it and you build on top of it. And so as he talks about moving beyond the basics, he's saying get this stuff good so that you can build on top of it. And what are these basics? Repentance. And we don't need to think of repentance as, did you feel really sorry you know, about your sin? But repentance is a reorientation. When you call yourself a Christian, when you covenant with this God, you orient yourself accordingly. You're saying, this is the one I'm going to follow, and he is my pioneer, and I'm going to follow the same path. This is repentance. It's a particular kind of orientation. And this is basics. You've got to master this before you move forward. This is the milk before you get the meat. (coughs) Repentance and faith and baptism. Baptism uh, is a dying to that old way of life. It's not only the removal of sin, but it's a freedom from those old constraints that might take us off the path. The laying on of hands, which seems to be uh, referencing the reception of the Holy Spirit. How do we have any hope of following this great pioneer on this difficult path? Because he, as we already know, has redeemed our flesh, and he works through us. And so we look forward then to resurrection. This is part of our hope. Why might we believe this Jesus is who he says he is, the great and merciful high priest, the truly son of man and truly son of God? Because the resurrection is this kind of guarantee of those things. And so, mastering those things, we move forward. Uh, as we are expected to be faithful, though not perfect, to our covenant. God, uh, or we're given Abraham as something like an example. God covenants with Abraham, and this covenant, we can expect it to be, uh, as God covenants with him, we can expect it to be something where God holds up his end of the bargain. And so we see Abraham demonstrating for us what it means to walk out in faith, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, even though he does so imperfectly. Because like Abraham, we have confidence and assurance, and our confidence and assurance is even better because we have Jesus and the resurrection as those things uh, which give us hope. And that hope is like an anchor for the soul. This is the end of chapter 6. That hope is like an anchor, but it's not rooted in the sea. It's behind the holy place, behind the curtain. That anchor is in the presence of God. There is nothing to fear. Because our hope is with Jesus, and Jesus is in the presence of God. Amen. So, chapter 6, 19 and 20, which is getting us now into our, uh, our lesson today in chapter 7. We have this hope 
a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, so now chapter 7, as he transitions into thinking about how Melchizedek and his character in the Old Testament might help us understand better who Christ is and who we are called to be. We're all up to speed? Okay. Um, So, verse 1, chapter 7. This king Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. We'll stop there just so you know the, um, the terrain. As we look over here to Genesis 14, 17, I think, as we're about to see, that the Hebrew author is, is not accidental in his timing of bringing in Abraham and then discussing Melchizedek uh, as he relates it to Jesus. Chapter 6, he's talking about Abraham as this model, God swearing an oath to him, Abraham's faithfulness. And who comes on the scene right after God swears or soon after God makes this covenant with Abraham but Melchizedek? And we see in Melchizedek, uh, this scene with Melchizedek and the king of Solomon and Abraham, how Abraham demonstrates faithfulness. And lo and behold, we get yet another oath. So if you didn't follow all that, let's read it and maybe uh, you'll see it. So chapter 14, 17 God has already promised, God has already sworn an oath, which we kind of got in chapter 6 of Hebrews. Uh, He has already promised to bless him, to bless those who bless him, and to curse those who curse him. So chapter 17, After Abraham returned from defeating Kedar Lamar and the kings associated with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. So some people had stolen his, uh, or, or kidnapped Lot and some others. Abraham gets this army together, goes and rescues them. So some kings come out to show their appreciation, or at least to get their stuff back. And then we have this weird introduction of Melchizedek. Even as you're reading Genesis, it seems like it's, it's out of left field here. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, bizarre, um, a bizarre story. Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So make sure you keep these apart. Melchizedek of Salem, um, and then you have the king of Sodom, two separate kings. Melchizedek blesses. Sodom says, give me my stuff back. Verse 21. Verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath. It's so strange that Abram talks about uh, the God who he's been interacting with, with the same title and language of Melchizedek's God. Very weird. Fortunately, I'm teaching Hebrews and not Genesis, so I don't have to uh, make sense of that today. I have, made, uh, I have raised my hand to the Lord, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Ain or Eskel and Mamre. Let them have their share. So, we have this strange scene. Melchizedek, who is this king and priest, comes and blesses Abram. Abraham shows faithfulness 
to the covenant God made with him. God says, I'll bless you back in chapter 12. Here's a chance for him to um, maybe uh, grab the blessing, to demand these things to be his own rather than give them back, to like the king of Sodom. And yet he says, no, I'm going to be faithful. It's like he's trusting God to take care of him. And lo and behold, right after this, the very next thing in chapter 15, God promises him again that he's going to bless him and take care of him. We've got God making promises and oath. We've got Abraham being faithful. And so we see this model back in chapter 6 of Hebrews. And then we have Melchizedek, this kind of transition figure, to get us now thinking about Jesus. So uh, the kind of way he's playing with and working in the text is is really fascinating here. Uh, So Melchizedek, if we go back to um, Hebrews... Hebrews 7, 1, excuse me, 7, 2. Chapter 7, 2 functions as something, I think, like a, um, uh, an introductory sentence uh, preparing us for the rest of this chapter. And to him, meaning Melchizedek, to Melchizedek Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name, Melchizedek's name, in the first place means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remained a priest forever. You got all that? So he's going to uh, deal with some of what he's saying here. First he mentions giving a tenth. So we have a reference to the tithe. And he's going to pick up on this in verses 4 through 10. He talks about um, Melchizedek how his name can mean king of righteousness. Or king of peace. If you're wondering how it might mean that, in Hebrew, uh, Melchizedek would mean something like Melech, king, Sedek, righteousness. And then as king of Salem, Salem kind of sounds like Shalom. So king of righteousness, king of peace. And I think he deals with this some in verses 25 through 28. Uh, We can already be asking ourselves some questions like, what does it mean uh, as Melchizedek is obviously going to be um, an example of Christ, or uh, he's going to play with the Melchizedek character to point to Christ. In what ways is Christ a king of righteousness? And in what ways is Christ a king of peace? So we'll we'll get to this. Uh, Then he talks about there is no genealogy, Uh, and no birth and death. And he's going to pick up on this later in the chapter as well. Uh, So the no genealogy, I think he picks up on that in 11 through 17 in these verses, where, uh, to give you a preview, I think part of his point is, just as Melchizedek has his priesthood without reference to his pedigree, who his family or, you know, fatherhood was, so Jesus is a high priest even though he's not from the right tribe. You don't pay attention to Melchizedek's pedigree, and Jesus' tribal pedigree isn't as important either. And uh, in, in kind of a strange literary way, since Melchizedek is not given um, any reference to his birth or death, it's like literarily, he lives forever. And what is true literarily of Melchizedek is true literally of Jesus. So we're going to pick up on this, and he gets to this part uh, in verses 23 and 24. So I think verses 2 and 3 here function as a way of preparing us 
for where he's going next. Questions so far that don't have to do with Genesis? Well, is it, was it, just, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. In the ancient Near Eastern world? I don't know. It's not normal in Israel. Yeah. So I can speak to that in a second. Yeah. Um, don't ask questions I don't know the answers to, please. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Can I say something? Yeah, certainly. If you think about Saul, remember when Saul um, was waiting for Nathan the prophet? And he said, I'm going to wait because we're going to offer this sacrifice today. Saul got sick up and fed of waiting on Nathan, and Saul offered the sacrifice himself. And it was the downfall because he did that. Nathan said, God is going to take your kingship from set so separate that Jews. This would have been anathema to a Jew to think that someone would be a king and a priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Solomon's a good one to, or Saul is a good one to, um, to contrast with here in um, when we get to verse eleven, because I think, well, well, we'll get there. But yeah, that's I, I forgot about that connection. Saul was a prophet and a king, but he yeah. was excoriated for priesthood. He had no pedigree. Okay. This is right. This is a preview mm-hmm. to show you that God, in this period, cares for His people and is, prepared, and is providing a way of access. We don't have a lot of detail about it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's strange. Yeah. There's so many questions that I wish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no priest according to the law. Right, there is no, this is pre-law, yeah, which is something the Hebrew author is going to get to. He's going to say, look, this is what was happening with our godfather, essentially, and he's recognizing something about this priest and king role. And then we get the law, and then we get afterwards, after the law, we get psalmist pointing to a priest and king. So it's kind of this before the law and after the law, which suggests maybe, as we'll get to, uh, there was an expected change. But first, uh, verses 4 uh, through 10, he's going to deal with, Uh, this giving of the tithe. See how great he is? Even Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth of the spoils. Um, Tithe typically uh, goes to the Levitical tribe. It's their inheritance. They don't have uh, a big plot of land like the rest, but they're given the tithe. This is specified in the law. And so we're seeing Abraham, as I kind of mentioned, recognizing something special about this character, who is king and priest. Um, which the Hebrew author is going to, to play with. And he's even going to say, and I think he knows he's being uh, playful with the text, because he's going to use language like, so to speak, in verse 9. But if we skip to verses 9 and 10, he's going to say, it's kind of even like uh, the Levitical tribe, which was in Abraham's loins, is tithing as well. It's like Abraham recognized it, and you can even, if you want to be playful with the text, say uh, the Levites recognized it as well. Uh, but it's not a, a major point there. Uh, verse 5, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people that is from their kindred, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not belong to their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promise. Abraham recognizes something in him, something that causes him to give him a tenth. And then we have like a little aside in verses 7 through 8, showing again the superiority of Melchizedek. It's beyond this dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he's talking, you know, conventionally. Um, and this is what happens 
Uh, the inferior, which would seem to be Abraham, is blessed by the superior Melchizedek, as though the great godfather Abraham, their patriarch, the one who they look to uh, for their identity, even is depicted as something like an inferior back in Genesis 14. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal, like the Levitical tribe. All those folks are going to die. And the other by one of whom it is testified that he lives, which is a garbled way of kind of getting at, it's like Melchizedek never dies, literarily. But we know, second half of verse 8, uh, the superiority of the one in whom it is testified that he lives, that is the resurrection. Literary character of Melchizedek seems superior. How much more the literal one who lives, Jesus, is superior. If you're not getting this, this um, what Melchizedek is, Jesus is, in superior fashion, then you're going to miss this whole chapter and all of Hebrews. Uh, okay, so that's a little about uh, the tithe and the priesthood. Uh, so questions might then come up. Uh, is Melchizedek outside the law? Is that why he's doing this? Is he above the law, superior to the law? Uh, it's, it's very strange, Melchizedek's relationship to the law. And I think this brings us in now to Psalm 110. So uh, let's read verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, then we'll flip over to Psalm 110. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according, according to the order of Melchizedek rather than one according to the order of Aaron? Before we deal with that chapter all the way, let's go over to Psalm 110, which he has been teasing us with, with these references to Melchizedek. We'll read the whole thing. This is an important psalm to him. And I think there are places in here we think, is this really some kind of messianic psalm that we would attach to Jesus? Let's read it, though. Verse 1 of Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Back in chapter 1, this is where he's saying he's superior to angels. The Lord, this is like David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, which is pointing to something like the superiority of someone coming from David's line which we already talked about, but maybe a little refresher. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. And here is our key verse, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a strange psalm, and I can't explain it all, though you do see this reference to uh, the Messiah as victorious. And you can imagine early Christians seeing there is a now and not yet element to this. He has in one sense defeated sin and death, but in another sense we haven't experienced the fullness of this. So Psalm 110 looks to Jesus, his death and resurrection, and looks forward to his coming restoration. But if we back up to verse 4, which is our key verse here, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So I was curious about what in the world this might mean uh, in the psalm context. So I went and asked uh, my colleague Terry Briley, uh, who's taught a lot in psalms, I said, okay, 
I get what the Hebrew author is doing with this, but what might this have meant uh, to the early readers? How would they have heard this reference to a, a king and priest in the order of Melchizedek? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and uh, it doesn't seem to, uh, to jive very well with the law. That's expecting uh, separation. Judah has the king. Levi has the priest. And he said, it doesn't fit. And it's almost like in this messianic text, it is... The Hebrew author kind of gets it right to some degree here, or I think all the way, but even as the early readers might have heard it, it's like he's looking forward to a time when a priest could also be king, and this priest-king would not be so corrupt that it would be a problem. Saul is a great example of the corruption when you combine priests, or that could have happened, of combining priests and king. But there's looking forward to a day, it's like they had these checks and balances in place almost. Looking forward to a day when these two could be combined. So he says it's like, it's like that Isaiah text about uh, a child will lead them. Things will be right, and maybe this leader will be so beyond corruption that he could be both high priest and king. Who in the world would this have been to the psalmist? I have no idea. I don't know what the early readers did with this. I think they were scratching their heads as well. Um, I don't know if you've got any stuff that you want to say maybe um, later on about uh, first century ways that people were wrestling with this, but, but there is this mystery about what are we doing with Melchizedek? It doesn't seem to fit in Genesis, and you've got this bizarre statement in the Psalms about a priest and king, um, which is anathema to Torah, and yet it's the anticipated maybe messianic restoration. It's fascinating. And, man, I think the Hebrew writer gets a you know, nail on the head here. Or Jesus fits. Like Jesus is a really good fit for this question, for this problem. Josh, let me tell yeah. you, so what this is, though, <clears throat> a topic of conversation in yeah. the, in the, uh, in the uh, Qumran scrolls, in mm-hmm. the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a uh, Oracle of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is something they talked about and thought about and had answers to. We're yeah. not privy to that. Yeah, there's this, uh, it's called 11Q Melchizedek. So these people went out, if you know the Qumran community, the Essenes, they, they went out from the city, they went out to the desert, they see this as a place of restoration. Um, they lived in community, they were trying to live faithful, and so we get some of their... Um, their writings, and there's one called 11Q Melchizedek, uh, where unfortunately it's kind of fragmentary and it's hard to make sense of, but Melchizedek is this character who is maybe a person, maybe a representative of Israel, but he's something like a faithful uh, leader who is part of a uh, time of restoration. Very interesting. Uh, But I don't know what more to do with it than that. But I do know uh, pretty clearly what the Hebrew author is doing. So with with that background... um, Coming back to Hebrews seven eleven, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek rather than one according to the order of Aaron? Uh, this language of perfection can mean two things. N.T. Wright takes it to mean something like uh, completeness, things being set right on a large scale. Uh, N.T. Wright's way of saying it is setting the world to rights. If the law uh, was capable of setting the world to rights, then we wouldn't have had to go beyond it. 
I think he's kind of right here because we have this messianic text that looks forward to that. But in Hebrews, the focus on perfection seems to have to do more with uh, morality and virtue. When this same word shows up uh, later in verse 28, it's related to Jesus and him being holy and blameless and undefiled. Or in chapter 5, the ability to tell right from wrong. So, it's something like, yes, big term, setting the world's right was not attainable through the law, but even morally, the law was not quite capable of doing all of that. We needed something more. Uh, something uh, that perhaps only Jesus can do. So verse 12, For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one of who these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about the priests. The law says a priest is coming from Levi, and yet here we have this priest and king that's coming from Judah and Jesus. And with the change of uh, a law, here a change of priesthood, it suggests a larger change in law. You can imagine, this is first century, and uh, it's a Jewish religion. Christianity is, make no mistake. It's a Jewish religion, just that the Messiah has come, as opposed to the Jews that uh, are in disagreement here. They might be asking questions like, uh, what about all that stuff about the priesthood and the temple? You know, what are we supposed to do with that? And so the Hebrew author is kind of pointing them forward. Look, there has been a change. There's been a change in priesthood, and now there is a change in the law uh, that uh, is a consequence of that. And what are the qualifications of this priest? Verses 15 through 17. It is even more obvious when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not through legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. Levitical priesthood comes through their pedigree. Jesus' priesthood is through his exalted status. For it is attested of him, and this is back to Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, now verses 18 through 25, I'll speed up. There is on the one hand the abrogation of an earlier commandment because it was weak and ineffectual, for the law made nothing perfect. There is on the other hand the introduction of a better hope through which we speak of God. Please don't overread here when it says the law uh, was weak and ineffectual. In this context, it seems like it's weak and ineffectual in regard to that goal of perfection. It is not in itself a weak or a useless thing. Clearly, as much as the Hebrew author is building and borrowing and using the Old Testament and the Torah, he doesn't think of it as just weak and useless, period. It's just when it comes to making us perfect, in that sense it is. Or you could say, when compared to Jesus, it's like it's weak and useless. Is it actually? No. But next to Jesus, yes. So this is not a, a poo-pooing of uh, the law. Uh, as N.T. Wright points out, uh, the word better shows up in uh, Hebrews more than anywhere else in the New Testament. It's so often a good to better, not a bad to a good. The law, these stories, uh, uh, Israel good, but now we have something superior and better. And what is this better thing? Uh, What we see here uh, is it's a better hope through which we approach God. The law was weak in allowing us to approach God. Yes, we have this temple system. Yes, we have a sacrificial system. Yes, there is a high priest who one day a year can go into this place that's most close to God. But compared to the access we have through Jesus, oh man, it's night and day. That was good absolutely a blessing. This, 
so much better. And what is this better hope? Clearly, it is Jesus. He is our hope. He is our anchor for the soul. So as we move forward in 20 and 21, (coughs) this was confirmed with an oath. For others who became priests took their office without an oath, but this one became a priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. (coughs) Jesus' priesthood is superior. It's confirmed by an oath, unlike uh, the Levitical priesthood. And Jesus is here, the guarantee. I love this language. Uh, it's, it's kind of covenantal language. He is the pledge, the surety uh, on God's side of the contract. God makes a promise. And what's the pledge? How do we know to rely on that promise? It's Jesus. Man, there is no better guarantee than that. Our faithful and merciful high priest. There is nothing to worry about if this stuff about Jesus is true. Uh, This language of a better covenant will be picked up in the next chapter, so I won't deal with it here. Uh, Verse 23 and 24. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Another two ways Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood, what it took many of them to do, he does alone. That's one way superior. They're mortal, he doesn't die. Two ways he's superior as king and priest. So, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save, and your translation might say forever or completely, Consequently, he is able to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful verse here. The language here can mean either he's able to save all the way or for all time, and I think both fit. I think to try to parse this is missing the point of Hebrews. He's able to save all the way and everything that means. This is our great and merciful high priest. Man, what a beautiful thing. When I, when I envision teaching this, I kind of, when I think about Hebrews, sometimes I think about like a traditional uh, black church where it's like you just have these like moments of like building and you expect response. Like amen. this this calls for like the amens and the yes and the, and whether we do it in our culture out loud or whether we do it with our lives, Hebrews demands response of worship and faithfulness. Uh, It is just that kind of uh, powerful um, build that goes through here. That's what it demands. Uh, And what does he do as our, um, uh, verse 25, he always lives to make intercession. In his life, he lived as a servant. And what does he do as the great high priest? But he lives to make intercession. Oh my God, this is our God. How good is he? How wonderful is he? How fortunate are we? Had we created our own God as people do, could we have made one this good? Absolutely not. So finally, verses 26 through 28, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Not fitting because we deserve it. Fitting because, as Luke Timothy Johnson says, this is what we needed. This is what we needed. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is the high priest we need, and this language, he's the sacrifice we need. I love how it holds these things together. We need the kind of sacrifice that is holy, blameless, and undefiled, and we need a high priest who's like this, and Jesus brings these two together in a beautiful way. And don't get caught up in the language of separated from sinners as though he doesn't care about sinners. He's the one who's making intercession. It's just a a sense of his exalted status. As one who is exalted, it's like in that sense. He is separated Unlike the other high priest, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for others of the people. This he did once 
uh, for all when he offered himself. Yet another way he's superior, they offer many sacrifices, he offered one. They offered animal sacrifices, he offered his own unblemished self. And we'll pick up on this more in later chapters, but it's already like whetting our appetite, I hope, uh, for uh, learning more about who this Jesus is. Verse 28, For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, as I pointed to earlier, you get Melchizedek before, and you get this reference in Psalm, this word of the oath, I swear you'll be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek after, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Here's that language of perfection. They are mortal. He is immortal. They are humans. He is capital S, son. Man, this is quite a Jesus, quite a Christ, quite a pioneer, and absolutely quite a high priest. What would you add, Randall? Um, the only thing I would add is uh, people who have influenced me over my life and, and have uh, been, um, who have been very influenced by Scripture. They're torn up by Melchizedek. Uh, I think of Charlie Brandon and uh, Brother Charlie's going to be listening to this podcast because he's in Florida now. But he, you can't, have, if he ever invites you to dinner, Terry, I know you've gone to lunch with him. And what does he talk about? Melchizedek. It's all he talks about. He talks about, I'm like, will you get up? There's more to the Bible than Melchizedek. And I really believe if you study this, that the pinnacle argument in Hebrews is in chapter 7 and 8. Here we get a new priest, new priesthood. One like Melchizedek. Next week we get a whole new gig, uh, a new covenant. It's a total different deal. And how he's explaining this to this, these guys, who I think were heavily priests, it's like you're out of a job. You guys can only get to work from thirty to fifty, and then somebody else replaces you. We have a priest now that we don't need anybody else. He does it. It's it's awesome. High high Christology. Thank you know, you. Let me close with a little. Uh, benediction reading from Hebrews 5 uh, where we get our first longer reference to Jesus like Melchizedek. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of Jesus' flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest accordingly to the order of Melchizedek. All right, and you go in peace. See you all um, next Sunday. Randall will take us into chapter 8.